This is Ron Stockton. In my course on non-Western politics, I had a unit on leaders. I would feature Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, Sultan Qaboos of Oman, and Chief Nanga, the remarkable politician in Chinua Achebe's wonderful novel, Man of the People. <clears throat> I also included Mahatma Gandhi. For Gandhi, I would have students read The Modernity of Tradition by Rudolf and Rudolf. It was published in 1967 and became an instant classic. It has a 100-page unit on Gandhi. Because I had read quite a bit about him and by him, I was able to offer students a summary of his strategy of Satyagraha, the concept of nonviolent resistance that made Gandhi famous. As was true in all of my classes, I insisted that students understand a position well enough to explain it to the satisfaction of someone holding it and to defend it from its critics. For their written paper, I would tell them to produce a faithful summary of Gandhi's political philosophy and strategy as he would describe it. I would also ask them, after they had completed their paper, to offer a paragraph or two of personal reaction. Did you like this assignment? Did you encounter anything that you did not like or found unrealistic? Almost all of them were admirers of Gandhi and his courage and integrity. Me too. But then, without telling them in advance, I would have them read the statement that his assassin read in court. Nathuram Godsi was not a deranged madman as we might expect. He was an intelligent, educated young reformer who read extensively in Western and Indian philosophy. As his thinking evolved and the situation in India became more violent, he moved towards the, IR, the, sorry, the RSS, a Hindu nationalist organization. It is the spiritual press predecessor of today's BJP party. From the time of his arrest until his execution, Godsey was able to write a long statement of his thinking. He also wrote a statement that he read to the court that heard his appeal against his death sentence. If my students thought they would be reading the rantings of a maniac, they were wrong. When I asked them to prepare a faithful summary of the statement, they did that well. When I asked what they thought of what he had read, they were in shock of what they had read, they were in shock. Some said they were disturbed that they found his arguments reasonable. How can killing Gandhi, a saintly figure to most Americans, be logical? One of the judges who heard the appeal against his death sentence attended to agree. While the high court upheld the sentence, the judge later wrote, I have no doubt that had the audience of that day been constituted into a jury, and entrusted with the task of deciding Godsey's appeal, they would have brought a verdict of not guilty by an overwhelming majority. As you listen to this podcast, please keep in mind why I'm doing this. It is not to convince you that Godsey was right. He was not right. I'm doing this because this is one of those documents that will cause you to stop in your tracks and think, how did I miss this? And what else? that I consider irrational is actually logical to the person holding that position. And I have a suggestion. If Godsey sounds too persuasive, spend a few dollars on a used copy of The Modernity of Tradition and read the unit on Gandhi. It is very good.
or watch the Academy Award-winning film Gandhi, which presents a similar perspective on this amazing human being. Rudolf and Rudolf, who wrote The Modernity of Tradition, were advisors on that film. Those will show you what was lost when Gandhi died. So let's turn to the uh, let's turn to this document. Gosi was arrested immediately after he assassinated Gandhi. The trial, which was held in camera, i.e., restricted, began on May 27, 1948, and lasted eight months. Gosi was sentenced to death. An appeal to the Punjab High Court did not find favor, and the sentence was upheld. This statement that I am about to read to you was made by Goldsey before the court on May 5th, 1949. It's entitled, Why I Killed Gandhi. Born in a devotional Brahmin family, that's a very privileged caste family, I instinctively came to revere Hindu religion, Hindu history, and Hindu culture. I had therefore been intensely proud of Hinduism as a whole. As I grew up, I developed a tendency to free thinking, unfettered by any superstitious allegiance to any isms, political or religious. That is why I worked actively for the eradication of untouchability and the caste system based on birth alone. I openly joined RSS, a wing of the anti-caste movements, and maintained that all Hindus were of equal status as to rights, social and religious, and should be considered high or low on merit alone and not through the accident of birth in a particular caste or profession. I used publicly to take part in organized anti-caste dinners in which thousands of Hindus, Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaisyas, Chamars, and Bangis participated. We broke the caste rules and dined in the company of each other. I have read the speeches and writings of Ravana, Chanakya, Dadbai, Nauroji, Vivekand, Gokhale, Talak, along with the books of ancient and modern history of India and some prominent countries like England, France, America, and Russia. Moreover, I studied the tenets of socialism and Marxism, but above all, I studied very closely whatever Veer Savarkar and Gandhiji had written. J.I. on the end of a name is a term of respect. Gandhi becomes Gandhiji. Whatever they had written and spoken. As to my mind, these two ideologies have contributed more to the molding of the thought and action of the Indian people during the last 30 years or so than any other single factor had done. All this reading and thinking led me to believe it was my first duty to serve Hindudom and Hindus both as a patriot and as a world citizen, to secure the freedom and safeguard the just interest of some 300 million Hindus, today it's 1.4 million, well over a bit, oh sorry, over a billion, um, would automatically constitute the freedom and the well-being of all India, one-fifth of the human race. This conviction led me naturally to devote myself to the Hindu Sanctanist 
ideology and program, which alone I came to believe could win and, and preserve the national independence of Hindustan, my motherland, and enable her to render true service to humanity as well. I think this uh, ideology is today called Hindutva. Since the year 1920, that is after the demise of Lokmanya Tilak, Gandhiji's influence in Congress first increased and then became supreme. His activities for public awakening were phenomenal in their intensity and were reinforced by the slogan of truth and nonviolence, which he paraded ostentatiously before the country. No sensible or enlightened person could object to these slogans. In fact, there is nothing new or original in them. They are implicit in every constitutional public movement. But it is nothing but a mere dream if you imagine that the bulk of mankind is or can ever become capable of scrupulous adherence to these lofty principles in its normal life from day to day. Slogans of Truth and Nonviolence In fact, honor, duty, and love of one's own kith and kin and country might often compel us to disregard nonviolence and to use force. I could never conceive that an armed resistance to aggression is unjust. I would consider it a religious and moral duty to resist, and if possible, to overpower such an enemy by use of force. In the Ramayana, Rama killed Ravana in a tumultuous fight and relieved Sita. In the Mahabharata, Krishna killed Kansa to end his wickedness, and Arjuna had to fight and slay quite a number of his friends and relations, including the revered Bhishma, because the latter was on the side of the aggressor. It is my firm belief that in dubbing Rama, Krishna, and Arjuna as guilty of violence, the Mahatma betrayed the total ignorance of the springs of human action. In more recent history, it was the heroic fight put up by, by Shivaji that first checked and eventually destroyed the Muslim tyranny in India. This is the Mughal Empire. It was absolutely essential for Shivaji to overpower and kill an aggressive Afzal Khan, failing which he would have lost his own life. In condemning history's towering warriors like Shivaji, Rana Pratap and Guru Gobind Singh as misguided patriots, Gandhiji has merely exposed his self-conceit. He was paradoxically, as it may appear, a violent pacifist who brought untold calamities on the country in the name of truth and nonviolence. While Rana Pratap, Shivaji, and the Guru will remain enshrined in the hearts of their countrymen forever for the freedom they brought to them. The accumulating provocation of 32 years, culminating in his last pro-Muslim fast, at last goaded me to the conclusion that the existence of Gandhi should be brought to an end immediately. Gandhi had done very good in South Africa to uphold the rights and well-being of the Indian community there. 
But when he finally returned to India, he developed a subjective mentality under which he alone was to be the final judge of what was right or wrong. If the country wanted his leadership, it had to accept his infallibility. If it did not, he would stand aloof from the Congress and carry on his own way. Against such an attitude, there could be no halfway house. Either Congress had to surrender its will to his and had to be content with playing second fiddle to all his eccentricity, whimsicality, metaphysics, and primitive vision, or it had to carry on without him. He alone was the judge of everyone and everything. He was the master brain guiding the civil disobedience movement. No other could know the technique of that movement. He alone knew when to begin and when to withdraw. The movement might succeed or fail. It might bring untold disaster and political reverses, but that could make no difference to the Mahatma's infallibility. A Satyagrahi will never fail, was his formula for declaring his own infallibility. And nobody except him knew what a Satyagrahi is. Now remember, Satyagraha is his philosophy of nonviolent resistance. Thus the Mahatma became the judge and jury in his own cause. These childish insanities and obstinacies, coupled with a most severe austerity of life, ceaseless work, and lofty character, made Gandhi formidable and irresistible. Many people thought that his politics were irrational, but they had either to withdraw from the Congress or place their intelligence as his feet to do with as he liked. In a position of such absolute irresponsibility, Gandhi was guilty of blunder after blunder, failure after failure, disaster after disaster. Gandhi's pro-Muslim policy, oh, whoa, pro-Muslim policy, is blatantly obvious in his perverse attitude on the question of the national language of India. It is quite obvious that Hindi has the most prior claim to be accepted as the premier language. In the beginning of his career in India, Gandhi gave a great impetus to Hindi, but as he found that Muslims did not like it, he became a champion of what is called Hindustani. Everybody in India knows that there is no language called Hindustani. It has no grammar. It has no vocabulary. It is a mere dialect. It is spoken but not written. It is a bastard tongue and crossbreed between Hindi and Urdu. And not even the Mahatma's sophistry could make it popular. But in his desire to please the Muslims, he insisted that Hindustani alone should be the national language of India. His blind followers, of course, supported him, and the so-called hybrid language began to be used. The charm and purity of the Hindi language was to be prostituted to please the Muslims. All his experience were at the expense of the Hindus. From August 1946 onward, the private armies of the Muslim League began a massacre of the Hindus. The then Viceroy, Lord Ravel, though distressed at what was happening, would not use his powers under the Government of India Act of 1935 to prevent the rape, murder, and arson. The Hindu blood began to flow from Bengal to Karachi with some retaliation by the Hindus. 
The interim government formed in September was sabotaged by its Muslim League members right from the inception. But the more they became disloyal and treasonable to the government of which they were a part, the greater was Gandhi's infatuation for them. Lord Lovell had to resign as he could not bring about a settlement, and he was succeeded by Lord Mountbatten. King Log was followed by King Stork. Okay, this is a children's story. I think it's British. The frogs pray to the gods for a king. They say they want a strong one, and the gods decide to play a joke on the frogs. So they send them a log, and the frogs see the log. They say, oh, that is one strong, strong king. Look at it. But then it just sits there, and they realize it's never doing anything. So the frogs go back to the gods, and they say, we would like... Uh, we would like another god. We want one that's strong and actually does something. So the god said, all right, these frogs are causing us grief, aren't they? Let's send them a stork. Well, of course, what the stork did was begin eating the frogs for lunch. And then the frogs prayed that the gods would take the stork back. And the god said, no, you asked for it. Now you've got it. You wanted a strong, you wanted a strong king. Now you have it. The Congress, which had boasted of its nationalism and socialism, secretly accepted Pakistan, literally at the point of the bayonet, and abjectly surrendered to Jinnah, he was the leader of the Muslim League. India was vivisected, cut apart, and one-third of the Indian territory became foreign land to us. Lord Mountbatten came to be described in Congress circles as the greatest viceroy and governor general this country ever had. The official date for handing over power was fixed for June 30, 1948, but Mountbatten, with his ruthless surgery, gave us a gift of a vivisected India ten months in advance. This is what Gandhi had achieved over 30 years of undisputed dictatorship. And this is what Congress part, the Congress Party calls freedom and a peaceful transfer of power. The Hindu-Muslim unity bubble was finally burst and a theocratic state was established with the consent of Nehru and his crowd and they have called freedom won by them with sacrifice. Whose sacrifice? When top leaders of Congress, with the consent of Gandhi, divided and tore the country, which we consider a deity of worship, my mind was filled with direful anger. One of the conditions imposed by Gandhi for breaking of the fast unto death related to the mosques in Delhi occupied by Hindu refugees. But when Hindus in Pakistan were subjected to violent attacks, he did not so much as utter a single word to protest and censure the Pakistani government or the Muslims concerned. Gandhi was shrewd enough to know that while undertaking a fast unto death, he had imposed for its break some conditions on the Muslims in Pakistan, there would have been found hardly any Muslims who could have shown some grief if the fast had ended in his death. It was for this reason that he purposely avoided imposing any condition on the Muslims. He was fully aware from experience that Jinnah was not at all perturbed or influenced by his fast, and the Muslim League hardly attached any value to the inner voice of Gandhi. Gandhi is being referred to as the father of the nation. 
But if this is so, he has failed his paternal duty inasmuch as, as he has acted very treacherously to the nation by his consenting to the partitioning of it. I stoutly maintain that Gandhi has failed in his duty. He has proved to be the father of Pakistan. His inner voice, his spiritual power, and his doctrine of nonviolence, of which so much is made, all crumbled before Jenna's iron will and proved to be powerless. Briefly speaking, I thought to myself and foresaw I shall be totally ruined and the only thing I could expect from the people would be nothing but hatred and that I shall have lost all my honor even more valuable than my life if I were to kill Gandhiji. But at the same time, I felt that the Indian politics in the absence of Gandhiji would surely be proven practical, able to retaliate, and would be powerful with armed forces. No doubt my own future would be totally ruined, but the nation would be saved from the inroads of Pakistan. People may even call me and dub me as devoid of any sense or foolish but the nation would be free to follow the course founded on the reason which I consider to be necessary for sound nation building. This idea that I will uh, be discredited and, 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 and will be killed, but the nation will be saved, I've encountered this view before in people who engage in individual acts of, of violence against leaders. After having fully considered the question, I took the final decision in this matter, but I did not speak about it to anyone whatsoever. I took courage in both my hands, and I did fire the shots at Gandiji on the 30th of January, 1948, on the prayer grounds of Birla House. I do say that my shots were fired at the person whose policy and action had brought rack and ruin and destruction to millions of Hindus. There was no legal machinery by which such an offender could be brought to book, and for this reason I fired those fatal shots. I bear no ill will towards anyone individually, but I do say that I had no respect for the present government owing to their policy, which was unfairly favorable towards the Muslims. But at the same time, I could clearly see that the policy was entirely due to the presence of Gandhi. I have to say with great regret that Prime Minister Nehru quite forgets that his preachings and deeds are at times at variances with each other when he talks about India as a secular state, in season and out of season. Because it is significant to note that Nehru has played a leading rule role in the establishment of the theocratic state of Pakistan, and his job was made easier by Gandhi's persistent policy of appeasement towards the Muslims. India is legally and constitutionally a secular state. Godzi says it was Nehru that created a theocratic state in Pakistan, a Muslim state. I now stand before the court to accept the full share of my responsibility for which I have done and, and the judge would, of course, pass against me such orders of sentence as may be considered proper. But I would like to add that I do not desire any mercy to be shown to me, nor do I wish that anyone else should beg for mercy on my behalf. 
My confidence about the moral side of my action has not been shaken, even by the criticism leveled against me on all sides. I have no doubt that honest writers of history will weigh my act and find the true value thereof someday in the future. Well, that's it. One of my students said this was the most challenging thing he read in his whole undergraduate career. He told me that twice. So why do I have students read this? And why did I present it as a podcast? For exactly that reason. It makes you think, is there something I completely missed? I remember in 1990 when, um, when Iraq invaded Kuwait. I had students read the speeches of Saddam Hussein explaining why he did what he did. And then I had them write a paper on it. And one of the students began his paper with a really interesting sentence. There is a history we do not know.